I've dreamed about it. You know, I've thought about it. I used to make my mom wake me up, wake me up at five in the morning on Saturday so I can watch Bassmaster. And now I'm here competing against some of those guys still that I was watching then. And this is a lifelong dream and a, and a lifelong accomplishment of, of hard work to get here. Man, you gotta, you gotta chase them down, man. Whatever it is, your dreams, you chase them. Your goals, you set up for them. You, you get after it. So if there's something in life you want, go get it. It's just that simple. The voice you just heard is that of Mark Daniels Jr., a California native who moved to Alabama to chase his dream of being a professional bass fisherman. What the hell is a professional bass fisherman? If you're like most people around the country, the concept might seem foreign. It might seem like something you do on a Saturday to make a couple of extra bucks or waste some time with the grandkids. But professional bass fishing is a real occupation. People have made millions of dollars in the sport chasing little green fish around the world. So today we're going to talk to one of the most knowledgeable sources in the business. He is the managing editor of Bassmaster Magazine. He knows just about every professional and wannabe professional bass angler in the world. And he can tell you how fishing is more than just a backyard dream. So if you're ready to expand your worldview, and if you're ready to learn how a ridiculous hobby can take you all around the world, take a step with me. Come get lost. Oh, you didn't know? Your ass better call somebody! This call is now being recorded. Hey, welcome to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a writer for Travel Channel, National Geographic, and Bassmaster Magazine. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about fishing and how fishermen are actually a little bit more well-traveled than most people might think. To do that, I think I brought in the perfect guest. He is one of my bosses, the managing editor of Bassmaster Magazine, Mr. James Hall. Hi, James. Hello, Joseph. How in the world are you, sir? I think I'm doing pretty good, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing, I'm doing dandy. By the way, is your full name Joseph? Yeah, it is. Okay, all right. Well, I, I just wanted to be formal for one second. And I, <laughs> now, now I'm over it. Right. So, uh, James is a cheap date. All we had to do to get him on the podcast was send him a, an Ace Freely Hello Kitty bobblehead. That was the price. Uh yeah yeah that is uh that is accurate and I'm I'm staring at Ace uh, who I call Leah now Leah Ace Kitty um she's staring at me with her deep blue eyes and wobbling her head forward and backward and in a, in a very rhythmic enticing way and I I appreciate I appreciate you doing that for me you're welcome uh, we we try to please all of our guests here on the Kit Lost podcast <laughs> whatever weird stuff you're into. Uh, we can provide that for you. You know, if I'd have known uh, that you're actually going to uh, fulfill my, all my requests, I would have asked for something a little bit more um, intense, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, James, tell us a little bit about Bassmaster Magazine for the people out there who maybe they're not anglers. They don't really know what Bassmaster is. Break that down for us. Well, but, yeah, basically Bassmaster Magazine has been around for about 50 years uh and it is a publication dedicated uh we call it the bible of bass fishing so uh bass uh largemouth and smallmouth and spotted bass are are the most sought after species uh in the united states and so we have about 510,000 uh subscribers that um get our publication each month and and we have another, uh, you know, probably tens of thousands that go across uh, the globe to, I think, 20 different countries. So we have uh, members in all sorts of places across across this world, which is kind of cool, and, um, you know, which does inspire uh, travel on occasion. But the, but the thing is, we just try to teach people and uh, how to catch fish when they get on the water and inspire them to go fishing, um, you know, if they're not on the water. 
Right. If if you know anything about fishing, you've probably heard of Bassmaster Magazine, especially if you grew up in the United States. Um, Bass also has a TV show on ESPN and um, all manner of reach. I don't know, James, how many people you think watch Bassmaster TV, read the magazine every year? I mean, it's in the millions, yeah? Yeah, yeah. They, you know, the MRI, the independent study, says that the readership of Bassmaster. We have five hundred and ten thousand members, but the uh, readership uh, is more like four point four million. And then, you know, the we we reach ten, twenty million, something like that, through the website every month. And then the television show reaches a whole other gaggle of folks out there. There's, you know, the the reach of of um, all of our media platforms uh, add social media and all that stuff to it. It's in the tens of millions. When you were growing up, did you feel like you were going to one day have a voice that could reach millions of people? <laughs> no. No, I probably thought I was be in jail by now, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. No, I, I grew up in Texas, and, um, you know, I was – when I when I was growing up, I was on uh, on the banks of Lake Arrowhead. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents who had a lake house there. It was a little muddy, a little muddy lake in North Texas. And um, you know, I, every now and again, I'd run into a game warden, and and I would think, man, that is got to be the neatest job in the world to be able to you know ride around in a truck and look at lakes and and get, you know dig in the woods all day long and. That's kind of what I thought I wanted to be until I realized that's a whole lot of work to become one of those. So I'm a little too lazy for that. But no, the the I never imagined uh, that I'd be doing what I'm I'm doing now when I was young. Yeah, those guys actually have to have like college degrees and stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's like some law involved and all that police stuff, and you have to be able to shoot straight, I think, which disqualifies me yet again. It just wasn't made for you, but I think you found your niche. When you were growing up in North Texas, though, did you ever travel outside of that area? No, 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 no. As a matter of fact, it was my uh, my grandparents had a, a little, a very small house. I, most people call it a cabin now on the uh, on the edge of that lake, and they had a boat house and. It was like my goal, my life's goal during that time just to get to the other side of the lake, you know, because we would always, we'd splash around in our little cove. And then I thought, man, if I could just get to the far side of the lake, oh, the things I'd see and the fish I'd catch, you know, the girls I'd meet. It was just one of those types of things. So, no, it was, um, I, I stuck around Texas uh, basically through college. Uh, you know, I... I had a job um, where I would travel to other states, you know, a little bit during the summer, uh, nearby states. But for the most part, my entire, you know, first 17, 18 years was uh, right there in the state of great state of Texas. I mean, I, I actually really like Texas. I got no problem with that at all. Um, but how do you think that shaped your worldview? I mean, if your view of life was sort of the other side of the lake, is crazy. Do you feel like your worldview was a little bit smaller than it is today? Oh yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Back then, it was. You know, I thought uh, there were only like three food groups. You had you had barbecue, and then you had steak, and then you, and then you had potatoes, right? So that that's about all. That's what that's what <laughs> we ate. That's the food we we knew. Every now and then, we got lucky. We'd get to go to the Dairy Queen and get one of those chocolate sundays, you know. So yeah, worldview was very very small, and you know, the, and it was a small town, which Saw Falls, Texas, was uh, you know still fairly small, and you know we um, it it was we had your great grandparents and your grandparents and your parents and then your cousins, and that was kind of you know we all were uh, you know a bit redneck, and we did redneck things, and we ate redneck stuff, and. Uh, we converse with other rednecks, so it was yeah, it was a very southern, very small town, and so it was uh, as far as worldview is concerned, it was quite narrow in scope. What What's an example of? Uh, I'll take it back. What's the most redneck thing you can remember that you can tell on this podcast that will get you arrested? <laughs> well, oh god, that's a you know the last part of that's going to get me. We would we we used to uh, do a lot of what we call noodling. Which is in um, you know because catfish was a popular food fish uh, at Lake Arrowhead, 
and that was primarily what we fished for. And so if you really wanted to get adventurous and and get off the bank and swim with them, uh, get rid of the fishing rod and the bait and all that, then if you go, we would sink barrels in, you know, in about six, five to six feet of water, and then the big flathead catfish would swim inside of there to hang out and wait for something to swim by. Well, you know where the barrels are, so you swim down there, hold your breath, go underwater, and then you feel around, uh, and it was murky, so you couldn't see anything. But if you felt the whiskers, you stick your hand in the mouth of the catfish, grab it by the gills, and try to swim up with it. Um, and that was, I, I consider that pretty redneck. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I feel like you're also wearing cut-off jean shorts while you're doing this. Oh, 100%. Yeah, but then most of them are too small uh, and uneven. Um, so, yeah, it was always cut-offs. Uh, you know, we would... We was uh, getting our our big thing at uh, partying, uh, you know, during that time high school thing. It was always going down dirt roads, uh, seeing you know who could do the coolest donut while trying to shoot the stop sign with the twenty two pistol at the same time. <laughs> you know, it was that it was that sort of stuff. You did the deal deal where you tried to go fifty miles per hour and see who could hit the um, you know the yield sign with the beer bottle, all those things. And there's a point system for each of those, by the way. Uh, but yeah, that was that was kind of some redneck stuff that we did back then. Yeah, and so that that leads you somehow on a course to being the editor at Bassmaster Magazine. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mention any of that stuff in my interview, by the way. Uh, it did not happen. Yeah, it was interesting. I my first job um, in this in kind of the fishing industry happened. I got by accident, sort of. I started working for. I was an English major at Midwestern State University in in Wichita Falls. And uh, so I thought I was going to be a teacher. Well, come to find out, me and small children um, uh, didn't get along all that well. Uh, and I realized, man, I don't know if I could feed a family on a teacher's salary. Um, although, come to find out, I could if I'd have moved <laughs> out of that town. But anyway, I got a move to Granbury, Texas. I got a job with a small newspaper, the Hood County News. And I uh, started writing a column in that newspaper, and it was always about fishing because that's just, I just wrote about what I knew. And, right. Uh, Were you writing about small... noodling? <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> I'm sure there's at least once that I wrote about noodling. Because uh, who wouldn't want a noodle, Joe? Who would not want a noodle? I mean, I, I've never tried it, actually. I feel like that's now going to happen sometime soon. <laughs> yes. Hey, hey, come to Alabama. <laughs> I got a spot for you. <laughs> How did I make it this far in this industry without noodling? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I, so then I wrote, was writing for the small newspaper, a small fishing magazine that was published in that community needed an editor about that time, and they called me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I write for a fishing magazine. Of course, I would want to do that. So I became the editor of that publication, and um, and that led to uh, opportunity at at uh, BASS, also known as Bass, which is the publisher of Bassmaster. And then next thing you know, ESPN buys us. I, you know, move into the editorship and move to Orlando, and, you know, the rest is history. And you lived in the wonderful world of Disney for what? Oh, uh, yeah. Over a oh, decade, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, it was. we were there for about six years. Uh, but I will say the pond inside Epcot is fantastic. It's got some... Ginormo largemouth. That that would be uh, another insider access thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. These days you got to know a person because you know whenever all all the nine uh, eleven all that stuff happened, they kind of ixnade uh, letting people get close to pyrotechnics uh, when there's a lot of people around. Right. And so you, you uh, they may not allow that anymore, but at the time it was fantastic. Do you think the fish actually like the pyrotechnics? No, I think I imagine they get annoyed by it. Um, but that's just my guesstimation. I have not interviewed one yet. But that's on uh, that. I'll put that on my list. They're a really tough interview, actually. <laughs> yeah, agree. It's hard to read them. I mean, I just I don't know. I've tried it, and you never seem to get very far. No, no, they can be tight-lipped for sure. Yeah. Uh, so you're now making this transition. You know, you're in Texas. You go to college in Texas, and you move away from home, but you're still in Texas. And then. All of a sudden, you're in Orlando, Florida, um, which is a big city. I mean, that's an international city. And now you have opportunities to go all over the world. Tell us a little bit about 
the places you've been internationally where bass fishing has taken you? Yeah, well, uh, preparing kind of, I, I got, I wrote down because I was kind of couldn't remember, you know, it's been, I've been doing this for, uh, 20 years now. And so, uh, my memory fades with each bourbon I drink, I think. But so I started writing down and remembering some of the other places, but it looks like it's around, uh, 10 different countries with, uh, including four continents on there. Um, you know, Africa, Brazil, Japan, um, Costa Rica, Spain, Ireland. Uh, you know, it, 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 it ends up, uh, being kind of cool the more I think about it. Cause in the throes of these travels, you're not really, um, you appreciate it once you get there. But then when you, when you squeeze all those experiences together, I, I sit back and like, man, I am so thankful. Um, that this little fishing gig uh, took me so many places and I was able to learn so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing. And I think there's a stereotype that people have of bass fishermen. And I I get this a lot because of my work with Travel Channel and other outlets. Um, PR companies will come to me and they research you. Of course, they Google you before they reach out to give you some info on one of their clients they want you to write about. Uh, but they'll be like, wow, it's Travel Channel. Great. Business Insider. What is Bass Master? <laughs> You're really into music, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Like, you really like music? Are you a musician? I'm like, no, no, it's fishing. And they sort of, they get a little weird when you talk about it because they think bass fishing is like this southern redneck sport that's like one step away from NASCAR. And maybe some of that is true, but I think it's actually a little bit more of a global game than people realize. And it's not confined, although it may have started in the South, it's not confined to that old school um, mentality and a lot of the negative connotations that go along with that, you know? Oh, absolutely. You know, if you, if you do just a skosh of uh, research, um, cause I, I was doing this for an article I wrote a couple of years ago. Um, you know, the, the largemouth bass, um, is is native to the United States, but it, as far back as the 1920s, I think we were shipping those things out, uh, you know, as as food fish and sport fish for uh, Germany and and um, uh, and China, and I mean, there's all sorts of places. I think 120 countries now have bass. The Germany fish, for example, for example, populated, I think, almost all of Europe with largemouth bass. Uh, so there you go to France, you can go to uh, Portugal, you can go to Spain. All those, all those countries now have largemouth. And, and you know, when I was, I recently went to Spain for a bass fishing tournament that they have there, a European, um, championship. And it includes, um, it included that year, I think 13 or 14 different countries, uh, where people would come there to compete, uh, at, for a bass tournament. You know, They're from coming Japan. from all over Europe or the, all over the world. Yeah. All over the world, yeah. They had United States, of course, represented Japan, uh, I think Australia, and then and then of course all the European nations. Um, and I mean, and that not the ones just close by. I mean, there was comes Sweden or something. There were some weird ones that that popped up uh, that I was really impressed with. But all of them, all those guys, you know, what what I find in my travels with bass fishing is. That, that, that fishing is this one small uh, common thread, and and you get to these unique places, and you this thread has led you to this this uncommon cultural fabric, you know, for lack of a better term. And every every one of these guys, these bass fishermen, they have you know from different countries and different origins, all have you know unique um life experiences where they're from and and you all gather together at a lake or at a fishing lodge or whatever and although bass fishing is that one common thread the the um you know the it's kind of the the oh man it's it's the experience i guess and the commonalities that expand from just the fishing part of it that becomes so unique you know that's the that's the thing that I really get intrigued by when I, you know, travel outside the United States while bass fishing. Yeah, so you'll have guys from Italy and Japan and South Africa and and everyone in America, and they all kind of come together, and they probably have very different worldviews as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there is uh, no doubt about that. You know, the... (laughs) 
I went um, uh, fishing in South Africa, for example, and met some of those guys there. And it was, you know, bass fishing. That their their worldview. They it's basically you have to go into uh, it's a self defense. Just you know, trying to get to a lake and ha- not have your vehicle stolen, for example, is kind of a big deal. You know, not getting shot on the way, <laughs> not having your stuff stolen. And then once you get on the water, not getting eaten by something. And I know one of those guys uh, once was attacked by a hippo in his boat and left a giant tusk mark through the through the fiberglass. You know, giant hole in his boat. And like, man, that is a whole different experience than what I have in Alabama. <laughs> You don't, but you might have to avoid being shot at. Oh no, that's accurate. Yeah, no, no, we can get a we can get a guy shot at in Louisiana every now and again for sure. Um, but you know, it's it's those sorts of things. And you know, the, the one of the guys I fished with in South Africa, he, his job was a um, he was into cosmetics. That's how he made his living. You know, and so and then you'll meet uh, a guy uh, the guy from Spain he was a financial advisor you know that lived in uh, Barcelona and so th- so yeah and all these worlds by the way have all these very interesting political things going on these days too so it's really neat to you know to kind of congregate because of of this little bass fishing thing but then get to experience you know the everyday lives of of these guys from these different regions. Is there downtime on these trips to kind of get to know the people that you're going to visit that they're hosting you? Yes, yeah, and that's basically my favorite part. If if there's not, I build it in because when we went to Spain for that tournament, for example. Um, it was a three day tournament, but we were there for ten days and. Our one of the hosts uh, let us stay with his family, and um, you know my wife while I was on the water got to walk their kids to school, and they stopped by the local bakery, and then um, you know got to experience the daily life of what it is to live in a small, you know, small city, Caspe, Spain, um, that you don't get to see and you don't don't get to experience when you're there as a tourist, you know, and then. They would uh, walk us around um, to churches or to local businesses and to their friends' homes and would cook us, um, you know, just what to them is a normal dinner. To us, it was like, oh, my God, this is the most awesome meal I've ever had, you know. It's like brisket. Like, it'd be like you cooking them some brisket or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be me throwing on some, you know, some steaks or a hamburger on the on the green egg and then saying, well, this is so unique. And, and to me, it's not. But to them, it's, uh, you know, it's a crazy, cool American experience. So what was the name of the city you were in? It was Caspe, C-A-S-P-E. Caspe? Yeah, right between Barcelona and Madrid. So it's interesting you bring it up because in a weird coincidence, I was in Spain a few weeks ago. And I also didn't really spend a lot of time in either Barcelona or Madrid. Uh, I was on an REI-sponsored cycling trip that took us through the southern part, and it was a lot of small cities where if you saw tourists, you really didn't see American tourists. Mm-hmm. Was that similar to your experience, or are you talking something like even smaller? No, yeah, I mean, there were no tourists at all where I was. Um, I, and that, and I, it, Because it's kind of out of the way in the middle of the their plains desert or whatever they call that over there um but yeah it was you know we of course ran into the tourists in in uh, barcelona when we landed spent a couple of days there uh but yeah whenever we got out to the lake side it was i mean if you want if you 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 had to want to uh be there to be there type of thing so it was not on a any real tourist uh, stop what advice would you give somebody that finds himself in a place like that Oh man, slow down and enjoy it. And and that is uh one thing that that make, draws me back to Spain and some of these other countries is that the pace is so different. And their priorities, um you know, our my day-to-day life, I'm I'm deadline, 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 rush, 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 you better hurry or you're going to, you know, get in trouble type of thing. And that kind of feeds over into my personal life too. It's just hard to slow down. But when we got over there, it was kind of we were forced to because their uh, pace of life is just different, and you know they have a they put a great uh, deal of pride and priority into spending time with one another. 
And so, you know, the dinner, the family dinners that we would go to, they would start, A, super late. I don't know if you experienced that, but a restaurant wouldn't open until 9 p.m. And then you get there and you're like the only one there. Yes, yeah. Uh, But, you know, they would start, they would eat late and then go uh, way into the night just talking and drinking wine and cutting that little ham deal super thin so you could eat it on a piece of bread. Um, I mean, it was, it, it just makes you slow down and sit back and enjoy, uh, the culture that you're being immersed in. And I, that's what I would say. If I, if I, if I was telling anyone, once you get there, just slow down and relax and, and, um, and adapt to the, to the pace that you're, that you find yourself in. Cause that's, that's where the magic happens. When you talk about adapting to the place, um, what sort of things did you adapt to when you were in Japan? Well, raw fish, uh, you know, that was a big one, uh, which, which I like sushi, but they, but their version, you know, they eat raw stuff that I've never seen before nor heard of. Okay. And they still have tentacles and legs and, you know, that sort of thing. So raw sliced fish I'm totally kosher with, but, uh, as far as, uh, uh, other things that become chewy and enlarged as you eat them, I think there's all sorts of octopus. I, I need you to break this experience down because it, you may have eaten an endangered species. <laughs> it's highly possible. Yeah. The yeah, I bet someone played a trick on me. We were at a we were at a buffet, and they said, "Oh, you got to try that one." And I was like, "What is it?" They're like, "I don't know. It's just delicious." So I grabbed a, a chunk of it and I went back to the table with other chunks that I had grabbed and started chewing on it. And it, with each bite, it, like, grew by two times. What? And by about the fifth bite, I couldn't even chew anymore. My mouth was so full. And so evidently that is one of those things you're just supposed to kind of swallow like an oyster. Um, I don't know if it – maybe it was a sponge. I don't know what it was. Uh, but the guy that, that told me to, to uh, get it uh, thought it was quite funny. <laughs> that does sound pretty funny. I wish yeah, I knew I what that was. If anybody out there is, is familiar with sushi, please tell us, <laughs> tell us what that is, because I want to try it. <laughs> don't don't chew. T- I give it a, like half a bite and swallow. Just you know, that's my advice. That's fantastic. So was um, Japan really hustle and bustle? I've I've heard that Japan is crazy. I haven't had a chance to go, but I know that Spain is like the most laid back place ever. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It, then Japan is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, so that pace is fast, but it, but it was different. It was a different fast. It was like a controlled fast. Whereas, you know, in the, you know, here in the U.S., it's like hurry, 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 go out and eat, hurry, 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 get home. And but there, it was like, oh, we must go here. And a very rigid, you know. That when I was there, I've been there, I guess, twice now. Once when Takahiro Morey won our Bassmaster Classic, he was a Japan National. We went back for a, um, you know, his celebration tour, and then a second time I went because the world record bass was caught in Japan, and I went to interview uh, Manabu Kurita, the guy that caught it, and. Both times, I think I flew into Osaka and was absolutely <laughs> amazed a, at the size of the place. It's just there in Tokyo. It's just and we think New York's big. Holy mother, those places are crazy. But it's very, very fast paced. But when you get to a moment where you are in, a, you know, a formal meeting or a semi-formal meeting, then everything whoop, slows way down, and the the level of respect that you're given in Japan, at least what I encountered was second to none. The people that I, that I met there were the kindest and the cleanest I have ever met, uh, as far as I can know. I, here's here's a quick story about how kind the people in Japan are. I ran out of hair jelly, right? Some hair. I need a hairspray because I had this big old mop of hair, okay. and we were gonna have some formal like dinner where you wear the little wraparound deal, the kimono, and you're supposed to be naked underneath it and all that stuff. Wait, what? Well. Yeah. And you're well, out of yeah. Dapper Dan, and you need Dapper Dan. Yes, I need, I need some Dapper Dan. And so I go down. I don't know how to speak a lick of Japanese, but I go down, and then and I tell the concierge lady, I'm like, look, and I start, and I, you know, squirting with my hand and rubbing through my hair. It's like I need whoop, whoop, my hair. Whoop, I need to look, you know, tight. And so finally she understood, and so she grabbed me by the hand and walked me out of the hotel. And I'm like, oh, this I probably did not. <laughs> Explain yeah. visually what I really needed. Three blocks. She walked me three blocks away from the hotel, 
and into a, a small convenience store and then pointed at the hairspray. And I was like, ah, you are the best human I've ever met. And I grabbed it and paid whatever yen it was, and then and then she walked me all the way back, and then bowed and thanked me for letting her take me there. I mean, it was it was amazing, and it, and it was all the people like that were there. So I, you know, that's Japan's one of my favorite places ever. That's absolutely mind blowing. But how did the dinner go? Well, that one went. Uh, that was interesting too, um, because it was it was that was particular dinner was um with one of the companies that sponsors um Takahiro Mori, the angler that we were celebrating, and they had their entire staff there, which is probably hundred and twenty people. And so we were at this head table and then they were in a giant square in this big ballroom all the way around us and we were sitting at those little tables you kneel at. So we were all kneeling down on these like it looked like a TV tray, you know, the kind that pops up and you sit on your lap. Right. Well, we were all kneeling at these, and then we'd get fed. They'd bring all these different sushi items around. It was absolutely delicious. But then at the end, every evidently it is a um, a matter of honor for you know the the host to serve the guest sake. Right. Well, well, so <laughs> I thought, well, this is awesome because these these people these these employees would stand up and they'd come and they'd serve Takahiro sake and other people up there, and then they serve me sake and these. You come pie, and then you drink the sake down. Well, that's awesome for about the first six people, but all 120 of those uh, folks were in line to do it. No, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so the the head t- we all end up kind of uh, needing assistance to to leave the party, <laughs> but it was awesome. That's insane. Uh, Takahiro is a, a cool story. If, um, if you guys don't know Takahiro Mori, he. He's the guy that would be good on this podcast because he basically ran away from home in Japan, which is not something I understand people do. And he runs away from home and takes a train and pays some fisherman some money to like take him to an island out on a lake under Mount Fuji. And Takahiro, like he had a plan. He spent most of the summer there on this island away from his family, like dishonoring his family so that he could learn to fish for bass and so that he could follow this dream of being a professional bass fisherman. It's crazy. That is crazy. And then then he, uh, you know, once he felt like he learned how to uh, fish for bass under Mount Fuji, he picked up to move to Texas, you know, hook him horns. Uh, lived on the banks of Lake Fork in a, in a trailer, uh, learned how to fish there, started guiding and, you know, didn't stick a lick at English, um, and, and just push it. He had a 10 year plan and, and one of them, one, you know, part of that was to win the Bassmaster Classic, which he ended up doing. It, it was, it's a very inspirational story, but certainly kind of, as I mentioned earlier, it's one of those, just one little thread reached, reached that young man all the way over there in Japan from what we were doing over here in the United States with this whole bass fishing, crazy bass fishing thing. And it, Led him to, uh, you know, not only earn the honor of his family, but to earn, the, you know, the biggest title in, in our sport. Yeah, and it's roughly equivalent to the Super Bowl. Um, I ran some numbers for an article I wrote for you a couple of months ago, and it turns out the economic impact of the Bassmaster Classic is actually greater than WrestleMania. Yes, yeah. I mean, if we would start selling those awesome uh, wrestling masks, I think it would be even. Greater, but yeah, it is impressive. You know, the thing about it is, is it, it's a passionate group. You know, the, I don't know how many millions of bass anglers there are in the United States, probably in the 20 to 30 million range or something like that. But unlike, um, you know, baseball or football or golf, it's a participa- participatory sport. And to participate, it's, you know, not super cheap. So, you know, you have rods and reels. You can do it on the cheap if you just want to go fish from the bank. But if you get really into it, then you you know you'll spend seventy thousand dollars on the bass boat. Then you need a tow vehicle. That's another you know forty grand, and then all the other stuff that you gotta you gotta buy. It's a it's a the money adds up quickly. And so when folks like this that enjoy the sport get together at a place like Knoxville, Tennessee, where we just had our Bassmaster Classic, uh, I think we had one hundred fifty six thousand people show up over um, over three or four days. 
and they spend a pile of money. I mean, that's just something that they love to do. It's totally bizarre, and I think that's something going back to when I have to explain fishing to people. Um, they don't really always understand that bass fishing is not – it's not really, for me, relaxing. Um, it can be, but I think it's more of an activity where, you know, you're not throwing a line and sitting and waiting like – on Discovery Channel, you might see Jeremy Wade on River Monsters do it. You know, he baits a line and throws it out. And even if you've been on vacation with your family to Florida and taken like an offshore charter, you basically just toss something over the side of the boat and wait. Um, bass fishing is not like that. It is not that. No, it's 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 more like uh, yeah, it's more like Candy Crush. You know, there's probably a lot of your listeners that yeah. have played Candy. It's a ch- it's a chess match. It's a puzzle, and that's really that's really the beauty of it. I mean, you don't go out there because we don't go out there to catch fish to keep and eat, right? We go out there and we catch these these fish, and then we just put them right back. You know, all this effort to finally get a fish in the boat, and all we do is return it to the water, and that's because it's not you know the bass fishing uh, game is is not about um having fish in your live well at the end of the day and taking home to eat it's about uh, uh, figuring out the puzzle that is the lake that day so you know because they're um the you know bass are a species that can be predictable yet very uncooperative right so you can predict certain things or guess certain things uh to be able to be successful on the water but there's a lot of there's a lot of little pieces to that puzzle uh, before you get a bite. And when you get that bite, well, then you have all those pieces together, and then you get another bite, and you just add one more, and it, it creates this perfect picture of how to be successful that day. And, and that's what it's really – that's what that's that's what it's all about. That's what people love is being able to go out there and have a challenge. All right, how do I go out there and catch fish? And then be uh, and unraveling that mystery is um, – you know, it just becomes very satisfying. Yeah, I, I agree. It is a puzzle, and I think that sort of what leads people in unraveling a mystery to want to travel for fishing. You'll grow up, like you said, fishing at your, you know, your grandparents' cabin, mm-hmm. and you think about going to the other side of the lake. Well, just extrapolate that across all of your experiences, and really, we're all just trying to get to the other side of the lake. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That is uh, precisely it. Yeah, you get you get uh, to the other side of the lake. You just don't know what's going to be there, you know. And and the other side of the lake uh, could be Hawaii. You know, there's a great bass fishing lake in the middle of uh, the Big Island, and and they don't have just have bass. They have these crazy little red, fire red fish um, that I you know just crazy looking things. And and that's not something that you would see on the other side of Lake Airhead, you know, but. No. But it is something that you will find if um, you know in your travels when you kind of follow that thread. But you went, you know, you first you went to the other side of Lake Arrowhead, and then somehow you ended up at that little lake in Hawaii, and somehow you ended up at a lake in Japan and Spain and Africa and all around the globe, uh, just because you followed your dream of followed this thing that you knew you loved and you wanted to do. Yeah, and you know, and it could be anything, man. It could be snow skiing, it could be shell collecting. It's, it's so anyone, you know, that, uh, anyone listening, that it's not not trying to convince anybody to go fishing, but um, whatever it is that you love doing, um, there's always, you know, it's the uh, other side of the beach, or it's 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 travel to me is um, being able to take what 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 I love and what other people love. I, I assume. And just enrich it because um, there's so, there's so many places out there, and there's so many unique cultures and uh, things that you know we just don't see ever uh, in the United States or wherever you live. That it's just um, you know it's an enriching aspect of my life. Every now and then I run into people who uh, I'm on a boat with, and sometimes it's like a local guide, uh, but they just don't have that urge to get outside of their bubble and that's fine you know i'm not here to judge anybody but it is sort of interesting that you can find people and it's not really very common usually if you talk to a fishing guide they've traveled quite a bit Um, but i ran into one in florida the last time i saw you and the guy had grown up in the keys 
and never really left. And he was a little younger than me, maybe mid twenties. Hmm. Never really left. And he, but he was really down on everything else in the world. Like if it wasn't in his zone, it was bad. It was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to people like that? Yeah, well, you know, it's to me, it's all, it's all, it's all about perspective, right? I mean, it's kind of like if you, when I go back to Wichita Falls, Texas, and I would eat at Brahms. That was kind of our our version of McDonald's or whatever. Well, then if if I went to you know Henrietta or another small town, they didn't have a Brahms. Well, I wasn't going to eat. Uh, you know, because that, no way it's going to be as good as as Brahms. And that's because the, my perspective was limited. You know, I would say to people like that is that you kind of got to open your mind and realize that um, that there are uh branches uh that of perspective that you know you can climb out on you don't have to go completely out of your body you know you don't that guy doesn't have to go to japan tomorrow but man you know try to go to lake fork in texas or try to go to the west coast in california you know it can be similar experiences but california um has uh you know a totally different culture than you know key west florida so, you know, there are things in life that I know I would have missed out on had I not been able, had the benefit of travel. Uh, people, you know, that I would never have met had I not had the benefit of travel. And, you know, there, there are parts of my life that um, I are altered today because I got on a plane and went somewhere I never thought I'd go. So, you know, those are the kind of the mysteries in life that this guy is likely to miss out on if he if he doesn't, uh, you know, get out of that uh, that area of South Florida at least once. That's what I kept thinking. I mean, he wasn't a bad guy, and I certainly don't wish ill on him. I just sat back and I listened to him. I just try to soak people in, like, when I first meet them. And I just thought, man, like, I'm not even going to bother telling you about places because I, I just don't think you want to hear it. And maybe that's wrong on my part. I don't know. Maybe he'll hear this podcast, but... I, Kind of doubt it. it. Didn't seem like he really cared much about who who I was or you. Or... <laughs> yeah, if you weren't a tarpon or a bonefish, he didn't he didn't care. Yeah, you know, and some people are like that, and they're especially. But you know, going back to Wichita Falls, Texas, and that little town I was from, there there's there are people that uh, were born in Wichita Falls, Texas, and died there, and probably you know never left a circumference of 150 miles of the city, and that was probably just to attend the funeral. Um, and you know, they, and their life may have been uh, fulfilling. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they thought it was. However, I think that um, any any time you know, we get, especially if you're in the outdoors, you know, and, and he's a fishing guide, or you have a passion for needlepoint. You know, there there's there's needlepoint uh, museums in Japan that would that would absolutely blow that person's mind if they were to see it. You know, so there's always just this expansion of your every day that happens uh when you go someplace that um you know you've never been before in my opinion. Needlepoint is really big with our demographic actually. <laughs> well, you know, I thought it might be. I know that you love it. Yeah, I do. That's a secret. But most people don't know that about me. Uh but before we get into too many secrets about me, uh we're going to lead towards wrapping up. But I just want to go back cuz we kind of glossed over Africa. I thought I thought there was a really cool story there about the guy who had a hippo tusk in his boat. But what's your experience? Tell me about your experience landing there and then fishing there and hopefully catching something. Oh yeah, it was amazing. Uh well first we uh, we uh landed in Johannesburg and then uh went north um to the to the border of Zimbabwe which is because that's where we actually was I went on a short uh hunt while I was there before I went fishing and um and you know the guys like all right we're going to stop for gas but um but don't get out of the car because this is not a real safe place and then he told us a story of uh them being you know pulled out of their his car by at gunpoint and he ended up killing a guy because he had a pistol under his, his seat. And the guy that was, you know, pulled him out of the car that, that he shot and killed, the police came and um, realized that the gun that was held in was from a cop that was murdered a week before. I mean, it, it's, it was a little crazy. And that's just getting to the 
safari. So then we got there, and then we run across this uh, native guy walking across the bushveld while we were stalking a gemsbuck. And my professional hunter said, hey, don't move. And he went up to the guy and led him back to our hunting vehicle. He reached in the um, glove compartment and pulled something out and then went straight to the guy and sprayed him in the face. And the guy started screaming and hollering, started running back from where he came from, tripping. I was like, what in the world just happened? He said, well, he said, he's coming from Zimbabwe, and those are the guys that come and steal all our stuff and kill our women. So uh, he said, normally I would have done something more severe, but I didn't want to, you know, scare you. <laughs> so okay. Um, oh, my God. So scared. your guy was like a local. Yeah, he was a professional hunter and local guy there at the at the lodge I was staying at. So... And, you know, they told stories, man, of of people who would come and steal. They'd track them down because their trackers are unbelievable. They'd chain them to a tree with a plate uh, that they would weld to their body, and it said thief on them, and they'd let the animals uh, do the rest. I mean, it it, it was it's it gets pretty serious uh, there. I don't really know <laughs> what to say, but that's, that's one of yeah. the shocking things I've ever heard. Yes, yeah, it was, and he was like, man, if you don't do it, then they will come and steal something else. I'm like, okay, it's, you know, that's, they kind of judge jury executioner uh, out there still, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a wild place, and, and uh, again, that <clears throat> you get home and you have a whole new perspective on safety. Uh, uh, absolutely, Birmingham doesn't look so dangerous. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. But the uh, but as far as the so then after the hunt um, went uh, with some of our uh, some fishermen there in South Africa and they took me to some local dams is what they call lakes and it was it was really cool because you know you have the crocodiles and you and you have the um, uh, what, what was the warthogs and the kudu they all come down to the lakes because there's no water there so. Um, they all come to the water's edge to get water to drink, you know, for uh, at some point during the day. So while we we're out bass fishing, uh, you know, we we see just unbelievable amounts of wildlife. You know, the stuff you, you see in Wild Kingdom uh, as as a kid when you're watching. Now, that may be before your time. No, but I remember National that. Geographic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom. That one. Uh, yeah. Oh, so, what's the safari stuff? And you just sit there and watch, like, you know, the, the night camera yeah. of what's going on under the plains in Africa. Yeah, yeah. But it was awesome, yeah. And, and we caught fish, and then, um, uh, you know, they have, they flooded some valleys, old, old uh, huts and stuff, and we'd fish the tops of those things and catch bass. And you know, it was just unique in, in the... And the summer sun, you know, is huge there. It was just kind of like, looks like, what's the Mufasa movie, Lion King? You know, Lion that, King. hey, of him. Yeah, you have that giant sun setting and the the crazy animals drinking water. And there you are, you know, casting for crazy little green fish amidst all of it. So it was it was amazing, man. I, that's one place. That's probably the next place I would I, I think I said that with every place I visited now, but I would love, I'll put it this way, I would go back to Africa tomorrow if I had a plane ticket. Absolutely. That's a really cool story. I guess it's important to note when you hear about scary stuff like that. Usually as a tourist, you're kind of exempt from that and it's, that's a whole nother like political thing going on and, and, uh, it kind of goes back to something that I repeat a lot is be a better traveler and just be aware of what kind of situation you're in. Not only safety-wise, but from a socioeconomic standpoint, like what can you do to help? And you can support local businesses. That's one thing that's pretty universal. So sounds like you were doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I always make sure that I have a, a local person with me, especially if there's an opportunity for danger. You know, in, in South Africa, we were surrounded. You know, we had uh, two van loads of of us plus four of the professional hunters and who live there, and so we we never felt concerned. But yeah, you know, from fishing trips in Mexico, for example. Um, so I'm going in July. That's my next cool trip uh, down to Mazatlan and up to El Salto. We have, um, you know, uh, the drug cartels, for example, are scary to hear about on the news. Right. Um, but the but the people that pick us up at the airport and transport us to the lake um, are all extremely familiar with the with the local police and you know we 
basically get an escort service to the lake and so yeah as long you know as long as as um you're with a reputable guide or someone that you know well it's yeah you know i've never felt like i was in danger el salto is sort of like the the holy grail for bass fishing especially in north america holy mother that's a great lake yeah i'm saying with the folks at anglers Inn down there and it is they it is like a five-star resort in the middle of a of a desert and the and the bass fishing there is pro is probably the best in the world you know con and on a consistent basis so and the margaritas are so delicious <laughs> I know for you that's a critical part that's <laughs> very important as me and me and Kitty we're gonna go down there together we're gonna I'll, I'll you know we're gonna share a margarita no doubt you'll have to bring her down there and when you get back we'll talk to you again because uh, you and I have a story about a sea turtle in a strip club. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and I don't know that it actually went in that order, but it probably did. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not what you think, I promise. <laughs> but we we got the turtle out of that strip club, and he's free now, as far as we know. Yeah, yeah, as unless he wanted to get back, you know, <laughs> he couldn't blame him with all the other sea turtles there. Yeah, totally. All right, James, well, thanks so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate your time. Um, you guys can read James' work at Bassmaster.com. It's on there, and also you can find Bassmaster Magazine at outlets all around the country, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can order it online or, you know, find it at a newsstand somewhere. But I appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking about it and uh, would love to come on chat anytime. We'll do it for sure. We'll see you, man. Thanks. Remember that guitar, that museum in Tennessee. Name played on the glass, brought back 20 melodies. And the scratches on her face told of every time he fell, singing every story he could tell. And all the stories it could tell. And I bet you it still rings just like.